We'll get started. Um, this is the CSIS series, Careers in Development, and with me today is Ambassador Don Yamamoto. I don't know if you have his uh, the, the handout with his background there. Don is the Senior Vice President at the National Defense University right now, and uh, he's spent most of his Foreign Service career related to the Africa Bureau in one sense or another as the Acting Assistant Secretary, as the PDAS, as Ambassador to Ethiopia, Ambassador to Djibouti, you were recently in Somalia, in Mogadishu. So Africa is his thing. But what he's going to talk about today, he's been focusing on the changing nature of the Foreign Service and the kind of people that are in the Foreign Service and the kind of people that are needed by the Foreign Service in the future. So it ought to be very interesting. And with that, Don, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, thanks very much. So first of all, thank, um, thank you very much for having me here. I feel very humble because looking at your previous speakers, they're awesome. So I hope I can do a good job. And the other thing, too, is today is like uh, there's green zone, red zone. You can't go here or there. Reminded me of Afghanistan. So, but I want, want to say is so each of us, each and every one of us has a very distinct background and American story and of an experience that you bring to the job that you'll take. And so I want to do before I start is just a couple of minutes about my background and then go into what drove me to, uh, to do some insane things in my career. So, <clears throat> so my dad was a, uh, a Japanese Imperial Army officer and he was the only survivor of his family in World War II. Uh, and, but he loves America. Why? Because here it is, the United States gave him a scholarship to come to the United States to study. Wow, God, I mean, it's great. What other country would do that? <laughs> and then my mom was, uh, her families were mostly in the camps out in California, et cetera, during World War II. And her uncles um, joined the 100th Infantry and the 442nd and fought in, uh, for the U.S. Army. And uh, two of them, two of my uncles were um, commanded by Senator Inouye. And I kind of asked him, hey, Senator, did you know my uncles? Yeah, 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 of course, yeah, yeah. I said, this guy was kind of a lazy guy. And I said, no, but he got the bronze star. Yeah, but we all got silver stars. <laughs> so I said, okay, got it. So the, and uh, my mom had a problem. She, um, in those period, the girls uh, from the Japanese community were sent back to Japan to learn culture. And so she was stuck in Japan during the war. And her American passport wasn't a problem. She was Catholic. That was the problem. <laughs> And so, and after the war, you could not get her out of Japan fast enough to get back to, to the United States. And so it was, a, uh, I think, a very different experience. But from all of them, the, the, the sign said that you guys have, their kids have to do something to pay back for the United States. And so my twin brother and I, we looked at each other and said, you, no, you, you. So I, <laughs> I got the short stick because I'm the youngest. So I joined the Foreign Service, and, the, and I have never looked back. The Foreign Service is great. Um, and so, again, we come from a very, it's very diverse experiences, et cetera. And one of the things is, is uh, I want to kind of let you know is when you come into, the, into any type of foreign diplomacy or whatever, it doesn't matter what you studied. It doesn't matter. I did biochemistry. So it's great, uh, mathematics and science. Um, and people say, well, you've got to do political science and history. No, you don't. You can do whatever you want. The main thing is analysis, the ability to look at things and to see new things and strange things and wonderful things and to do things that will help the United States. Because when you take the oath of office, 
it's not a job, it's a mission, and you're working for the people of the United States. So let me, with that, let's kind of go into some of the issues and challenges. So one of the things that I notice in the U.S. government or any government bureaucracy is people make up stuff. <laughs> and so they said, and so this is on the left, on left side is what the world looks like to an assignments officer. And these are the hardship posts in the world. So we have another map which is all red, which is bad, and it tells you the, those countries which are high crime rate countries. So remember the uh, Washington Post or whatever came out with the top 50 really violent cities, I think two in America, but the rest were around the world, South Africa, Latin America, et cetera. But, so then you just make the rest of the world red. And then if you do counterterrorism and terrorism threats, then you got Western Europe, Canada, the United States too. So the world has really changed dramatically since I entered the service back in 1980. Uh, and the other thing, this, this other thing is on evacuation. So <laughs> we were at a senior staff meeting uh, interagency with all the uh, intel people and military, and they said, how many embassies do we evacuate in a year? They said, oh, maybe two or three. And the U.S. Marines or the U.S. military are the, always the ones that come in. And I said to myself, um, what? So there's, if there's one thing I can share with you, remember what Voltaire said. Voltaire said, never judge a person by the answers they provide, but by the questions they ask. And if they don't ask the right questions, they can't get to the right answers. And so the right question should have been is, how many, why do we evacuate? And what are the causes? And what are the things that we can do to change it? So we did, we did a data dump, and we noticed that we evacuated, um, on average, 19 embassies a year. 19. And it's not a full evacuation. It's partial evacuations, mostly. But that only less than 10% are, are assisted by the U.S. military. Most of it is done by us, by Bill and I when we're overseas. We do the evacuations. I remember when I was in Eritrea, we had uh, Ethiopian MiG jets, uh, MiG 21s, 19s, kind of bombing us every day at 9 o'clock. So we did the evacuations ourselves. And uh, the U.S. military did it at the end, but we basically got most of the people out. And when we do an evacuation, because we're the United States, we evacuate everyone, anyone who wants to come in. So, so in one of the evacuations, we did the Russians, and we did the Israelis and the Egyptians, and we had them all, and it was a photo it was a great photo, and all these people together, all these diplomats and citizens, et cetera. We did China. We did um, uh, the Scandinavian countries. We did Africa. We did a lot of countries. So those are things that are really kind of fascinating, because as the United States, we do things because we do, because we're Americans. <laughs> um, another thing, too, is let me go over here <clears throat> and how things are changing. So... So the way the Foreign Service has done is it's really changed dramatically. So when I came into the service, it was very traditional. You know, you go to an embassy, you learn the tools of the trade. Now, it's different now. If the country you're assigned to is no longer that country of your focus, your focus is A, what are the interests of the United States? What is the interest that makes or, or motivates the people of America? That's your number one thing. If you don't have that understanding, then you're going to fail as a diplomat. The second thing you've got to know is, 
What is it that you do that is important not only to the country you're assigned to, but the entire region and also multi-inter-regions? Now, after 9-11, we really, the uh, diplomacy, development, everything changed on how we do things and how we operate. Uh, so my two kids are in the U.S. Army. Yes, and so when I went to Afghanistan, I said to the secretariat, uh, that's not on my bid list. I says, oh, it is now, here it is. <laughs> so I went to Afghanistan, my son is there. He was a captain with the, uh, the army. He spent two tours in Afghanistan, a tour in Iraq. And my job there was kind of looking over the northern part of Afghanistan, those Mazar Sharif, et cetera, and then it came down to the embassy to be the acting DCM to manage the staff. And it is one of our largest embassies in the world, bar none. Then the next thing I did was I went out to Bagram and I started to downsize because the president of the United States at the time, Obama, said that we're going to close up operations and really kind of retract. And so we had you know, quite a number, two, three dozen PRTs operating all over Afghanistan. By the time I got there, we were down to four I helped close up those operations. And so I, I went out, and uh, this is a scene in Bagram, where this is a Russian uh, base, our living quarters are next door. Um, <clears throat> and when we went out, um, I, I had two Blackhawk teams that I used to go out flying all over from the Bagram area into eastern Afghanistan in the north. And then we went up to Herat, Helmand uh, province, and then in the south, and then Haran in the west, Mazar back to Mazar in the north, and then uh, Jalalabad, et cetera, in the east. Uh, and I also spent a lot of time in the American embassy, and of course, the Marines and the U.S. embassy are very closely tied and linked. Uh, another thing is, uh, oh, that's the Somali, well, I'll go to that later. Um, <coughs> so, um, let me go here. So, so as we downsized our mission and we went into, uh, into uh, Kabul, as, an, as a diplomat, it, it's antithetical. Why would we want to downsize and just be in Kabul? You want to be out. And one of the things that, so I was the last uh, diplomat or State Department assigned to the embassy that was outside the wire. And it was great because we met, we went to the um, areas to meet community leaders. We tracked our development programs. So in the north, which is basically Tajiks, Uzbek, and Hazaras, we had about, I would say, over 80% of all eligible kids inside schooling. AID did probably one of the most dramatic, dynamic, and unbelievable programs. And they also got the buy-in of the clerics, which was critical, and the community leaders. And 40% of all our students uh, were women, girls. So that's really a big jump. Then we go to the eastern part, and we got uh, predominantly Pashtun area, 20% in the schools, very few girls. Um, a lot of the um, the, uh, the clerics were not in favor of education. Uh, they didn't have the buy-in that we had from the Tajiks and Uzbek up in the north. So it was really hard, tough part. And then you go to Helmand or uh, <clears throat> Kandahar area, the same problems. You got the west part was, was a little bit better. But it, the development programs, it was hard, it was tough, and it was dangerous. Every time you went out, you had a full security team. and. But the thing is that without doing that, uh, we can't make progress. And the issue is, is that this is not just for the U.S. It's for the people 
of the country that you're uh, assigned to, is to help them help themselves and to make a better life for the future. And uh, I was up in uh, Jalalabad talking to the, uh, uh, the governors, et cetera, and we had a blue and green attack on our security team. And as I always do, I always meet every military personnel who's on our security team. Why? Because my son's in the Army. He was an NCO. He did the same uh, issue before he became an officer. And you just don't know what's going to happen. So we had eight were injured, one was, was killed in action. And I wrote to their parents. That was the hardest thing I had to do, to write to the parents that their 20-year-old son was not coming home, was killed in the line of duty. And we all know the, the risks, the challenges that we face, but it's hard, it's tough. So <clears throat> um, at that point, we um, were um, uh, told that we were going to be confined to, to the base. And I said, I'm not going to be assigned. Why, why should I be in Afghanistan if I'm going to be just working in a base? I want to be outside meeting the officials. We know what the risks are. So the ambassador and some others were saying, Don, do you have a death wish? Do you want It's like, no, this is the order from the president. And I mean, this is the order. You have to follow those orders. And I said, no. I said, what are they going to do? Send me to, the, uh, to Mogadishu, Somalia? <laughs> uh, a year later, I was in downtown Mogadishu. <laughs> Setting up the American embassy there. So it was okay. No, but the thing is that is for us, we want to be in the field. That's why we signed up. And we know the risk. And if you go to the State Department, look at the lobby. We have six black walls in the lobby. <clears throat> it took about 150 years just to fill one. And it has the list of names of people who died in boats, you know, um, sunken boats or fires or whatever. But in the last 40 or so years, it's terrorism, it's war, it's violence. A lot of the people I worked with who are on that board, I knew them. Uh, and then we have family members who have also died in the line of duty. Because it's, it's not just us, it's a family issue. So those are some of the things that, that we can look at. Um, let me just go look back to what the service looks like, what are we going to look like in the future, et cetera. So when I entered the service, we had about 4,500 officers. Today we got 7,600 officers. The number of civil servants also expanded from about 4,500 to 11,000. But what's really interesting is we have, because we're so unusual, we have 47,000 local staff working in our 278 embassies and consulates around the world. Um, the average age of entering classes, let me just tell you, is, is 32 to 35. And 80% um, will have um, a master's degree. 100% have lived overseas, have done things with um, or have traveled frequently, 100% have studied a foreign language, and over 80% come from the same blessed schools, <laughs> which we, we're trying to diversify. So this is diversity. Trying to diversify. We don't want that person from Texas A&M, Nebraska, and other places. But it's the same places, University of Texas, we got Georgia, up to North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Duke, and then California, UCLA, USC, University of Washington, Michigan, Notre Dame, and then, of course, the Ivy Leagues, et cetera. Uh, and then we have Spelman and uh, Howard from the... Uh, from the diversity areas. So what we want to do is, is it's, so I went recruiting, and I said, well, why is it that we all get the same people from the same universities? And it's hard. If you're d down, I went to Alabama and Mississippi to go recruiting, and what's the problem with us is we don't have, we need to do a lot better 
job about saying who we are, what we do, and why it's in the importance of the American people to know what we do. First thing I did when we went to Alabama State, they said, what do you guys do? <laughs> and when I was in, my brother, my son was out in Iraq, and the commander of the 3rd ID asked me, what do you do? <laughs> So I said, if, that, if they're asking, then we got a problem. We got a, a, uh, a, a PR problem. So what we're trying to do now, and uh, we started a launched a program called Faces of Diplomacy and what the Foreign Service does and why it's in the, in the, in the uh, interest. So I'll give you an example, and I like to do stories because stories really inform people. So when I was the ambassador in uh, Ethiopia, we had a couple of members of the Louisiana uh, congressional delegation come out. And of course, what happened? We had Katrina. Katrina is probably one of the most, for a person from New Orleans and Louisiana, it's, it's, it's just terrible. It's, it's, to this day, it's still a problem. And as a diplomat or as a development person overseas, if you can't explain to that member of Congress or to that person in New Orleans who, who doesn't have, let's say, water or doesn't have good housing, why giving in this case, $6 billion to Africa is in our national interest. Why is that important than taking some of that money and finding good housing for the people in Louisiana? If you can't explain that, then we failed, and we also failed in expanding and explaining what we do. And so what I always do is I always bring my youngest officer and say, you explain that to the member of Congress. If you can't explain it, then I, as a leader, have failed to explain it. And, um, and the answer, of course, is <clears throat> Ethiopia at that time is our number one food recipient country in the world back in the, in, uh, several years ago. Number one. I thought it was, you know, someplace in South Asia or the Middle East or no, it's, it's Ethiopia. And the number one food recipient area is East Africa. So on a good day, we're, a good year, we're what, providing about 460,000, no, 600,000 metric tons of food. Okay, so that's, that's a lot of money. We're, we're talking about 800 to 900 million dollars a year, just this one country. 800 million dollars, a member of Congress saying, what, the, what are we doing? Why are we doing that? What is, why is giving this money to this godforsaken area important to America, to the American people? And the answer is, is that Ethiopia happens to be one of our top peacekeeping operation troops in Africa, and probably in the world. In fact, the State Department, we do things very, uh, very innovative and creatively. It's not just development and diplomacy, it's thinking out of the box. If you have in Africa constantly a change in governments through coup d'etats, that's not good. It's not stable. And so what we've done is we now train military troops, the State Department. We've trained over 240,000 African troops from 24 countries. Over 100,000 remain in peacekeeping operations, 30,000 in UN operations. And so the Ethiopians are one of our best troop contributing countries. Not only that, they're disciplined, uh, there are no violations. It's a tremendous uh, group. The other ones are Rwandans, we've got Senegalese, um, and Nigerians, others. It's just really a good program. And so because of these African troops in a peacekeeping operation, we don't even have to depend on American troops. Another issue, too, is that Ethiopia, this poor country, bought a couple of billion dollars of Dreamliners from Boeing Aircraft. That means they saved something like 30,000 American and other jobs by buying this. A poor country like Ethiopia. The other issue, too, is that um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, 
because we're using the port of New Orleans for shipping, we're also helping the longshoremen and others. So, so I mean, we got to be able to, to tell our story and get the information why it's important. By having this area stable, and also because they're also on the front line at that time on, the, on terrorism, that, that also helps keep the regional stable and also helps prevent us from sending over U.S. troops. So those are some of the, the challenges that we face. L let me get you um, a couple of other things. So going back to the, to the service, is our foreign service is, is very different now. So on an average year, we'll probably 17,000 to 25,000 will take the foreign service test. But just remember, that's only one of like dozens of ways to enter the, the service. Uh, altogether, probably around maybe 25 to 30,000 will apply each year for the service. This year, we took in 280 into the into the service, and it says, "Wow, that, those aren't really good numbers." But if you have a, a foreign language, if you lived overseas, um, you're coming from, you know, you have a you know college degree, whatever. You're really going against maybe 6,000, 7,000 people, not 30,000. Um, and the other issue too is that, um, you know, the the um, uh, the uh, average um, uh, people coming into the service is so. The other ways to enter is through the uh, we have a, a scholarship program. So each year we have the Wrangell and the Pickering scholarship program that takes in a couple of dozen people. And actually, that's kind of not well known. But we'll pay for two years of education, and from there, you've you got to give us five years in a service, and most people stay in, in the service. Another area is um, we're seeing uh, after 9-11 is uh, most of our people, you know, students, Peace Corps volunteers, NGO groups, private corporations, we're now looking at about 10 to 20 percent of our incoming class are prior military, U.S. military. And they bring a whole new uh, set of uh, leadership skills and issues. The other challenges, too, is that if... If you look at the, the service, the foreign service, it's not just you can serve the United States by a multiple or multitude of ways, not just through the foreign service, but through AID, through other agencies, Department of Defense, Homeland Security, FBI, um, other agencies, uh, Health and Human Services, Commerce Department. And the other issue, too, is looking at uh, the private corporations, Procter & Gamble, General Electric, Boeing Aircraft. Uh, when I go overseas, uh, when I was in the Far East and even in the Middle East, we do a lot of things promoting American corporations. Why? Because it's in our national strategic interest. So I'll give you one example. Is when I was in, um, uh, in Japan, we were promoting the sale of American oranges uh, and almonds and uh, beef and wine to Japan. Yeah, we got, like, number one sales. And so that was one of our main jobs. Another thing in, in Africa is, is looking at, looking at uh, different types of programs. So I'll give you one example. So um, if you look at golfers or, or baseball or, or hockey players, they wear these great leather gloves. Where does the best leather in the world come from? The best. It comes from Ethiopia, South Africa, Uganda, Rwanda, but mainly Ethiopia. And what happens to those? It's processed by Japan, the United Kingdom. We're trying to get Americans involved here because your tax dollars are helping to develop this, this program. Why? Because it creates jobs, it creates stability, but also the Americans 
we as the United States, we're also beneficiaries of, this, of these investments. And so a lot of these leather products are sold in the United States. Of course, a lot of them goes to uh, shishi uh, Italian uh, shoes, which my wife buys too. It's just great because they're long-lasting. They, they can last for, you know, 10 years, much better than buying cheaper shoes. But it's, those are things. The other thing too is coffee. We help Starbucks buy star, um, coffee from Africa in development. And why? For the American market. So those are a lot of things that are, are interchangeable and exchangeable. The other thing, too, is look at your cell phones. Okay, 10% of your cell phone materials, where does that come from? It's going to come from Africa, where most likely Eastern Congo. Why? Because Eastern Congo has one of the highest repositories of rare earth minerals, titanium, tallium, tungsten, tin, etc. And... We know that, the world knows that, and who are there basically taking out these resources? It's the Chinese, it's North Korea, it's Iran, it's Russia, it's neighboring states. We have only one American company that I know of, right? But Freeport? Yeah. They sold, Ooh, their, okay. they sold their concession to China about yeah. six months ago. So those are some of the things is that we really need to get American corporations involved because where do most of these rare earth minerals are developed. If it's North Korea or China or Russia is going to develop it, where is it going to end up? It's going to end up in the United States, right? Or not North Korea, but uh, China or other countries. Iran is there. I mean, even Europe, Western Europe companies are there. So if that's the case, is that we need to do it. But also we need to do it in a very reasonable and uh, um, manner in which benefits also the people in the region to ensure that they also not only have um, access to the resources, but also to the profits from those resources. So those are some of the things that we do as diplomats. Now, going back to another thing is... Uh, you get your smiling picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so we were in a meeting in the interagency, and, and so, so someone said, well, you know, Somalis are really short people because they're starting everything. No, they're not. Where do you get that from? <laughs> Somalis are really big guys. In fact, if I were a coach for the NBA, man, I'd be picking these guys like ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the, uh, the what, deputy prime minister. Oh, well, yeah. So this is the deputy prime minister of uh, Somalia. So and and I said, I I met. So when I was in the meeting, I said I didn't I did not see anyone below the height of six foot five. <laughs> and I said, I said we need to go to get to Los Angeles Lakers, New York Knicks, Washington Wizards to come and uh, help them. So. The other thing, too, is this is my team out in uh, Mogadishu. And uh, it's a great group from interagency. It's not just state. State is always the smallest group in any of the uh, embassies. Um, we have AID, uh, Treasury, FBI, Homeland Security, DOD, etc. cetera. Um, and I always point to this from Nelson Mandela. And just remember, whatever you do, whatever you engage in, um, <clears throat> there's always another hill to tackle. Okay. So if, if you have questions, just kind of chime in. Otherwise, I'm going to have a couple more stories. And then in the back. Please, be, before you do it, state who you are and where you're from. So he has an idea okay. of who he's talking to. My name is Todd Wiggins. I live here in the District of Columbia. I have a website called dccelebcom I would like to know a little bit more about the mobile phone industry, since that's just obviously going to continue to develop. Is there natural materials in the U.S. 
that we could use, and can we bring manufacturing over here, or does that just seem like a, a, a dream? Manufacturing, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> and it's a hard question to answer. Um, one of the things that, so I did a lot of trade, you know, it's a biochemist. Uh, before I answer, let me, let me just add one anecdote. So, so the State Department is a very odd bird. We have experts in almost every field, nuclear engineering, because we do nuclear regulatory. We have observers. We have doctors who go in and, and, and treat for Zika virus and others. We have uh, probably we have uh, engineers, architects, um, because we do a lot of construction overseas. We do wa- we have uh, probably the greatest water experts are in the State Department because why? Because we do a lot of water management overseas. Because the next conflicts in a lot of areas is on water. So going back to on trade promotion, so I did a lot of on trade promotion, looking at what the market is, and so what AID did is is probably one of the most ingenious and. and AID is more than just development. What is development? Development is not just helping communities uh, be better communities, but it's how to do it. And one of the things that AID instituted was their trade promotion. So they look at specific sectors, particularly, say, let's take Africa, for example. So they go to each country and say, what are the factories or the uh, the sectors that are important? And they looked at, so Ethiopia and uh, was the area was textiles, agricultural specialty programs, leather, um, and then coffee. And then you go to the Congo and, and Central Africa areas, energy, it's natural resources. Then you say, well, what is it in the United States we can marry them up with? What is it that we can look at that can help? Uh, what is it that other markets can can develop or take access of? And so we do a lot of uh, trade promotions, not only bringing... Africans and other countries to the United States. And the Department of Commerce has probably one of the finest um, resources and uh, connections in the United States to marry them up to companies. Uh, and the reverse side is trying to bring American companies out to, out to uh, certain countries. The problem comes in, of course, is uh, financing, uh, security, uh, and uh, 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 you know, other issues. But Going back to your question is, how can we do, um, you know, development and manufacturing? I think that if we can get, let's say, the, uh, for instance, Ethiopia, the leather industry, or textile, Fruit of a Loom is, makes their factories in uh, Ethiopia. Um, Starbucks has black aprons that are produced in Ethiopia. Um, we have coffee factories. We have other issues in Congo about natural resources. If we can get American corporations linked up and tied up, and then help and work with companies on financing, uh, insurance, uh, guarantees, et cetera. Uh, and then I think that way could help bring much more resources to the United States to help with development. And I think it's, it has to be a partnership. It has to be two ways, not only with the American corporations, but also with, uh, with the countries uh, in, in the countries that you're looking at. So I know it's not a great answer, but it's kind of a broad base. And we have to be very flexible, innovative, and creative to look for new ways, uh, to see, see opportunities. Um, I was just uh, going to add, because uh, you were talking specifically about the Congo and the, the strategic minerals in eastern Congo, there's a dilemma with 
with tantalium and these other things that go into the cell phone because that's what the fighting is all about in eastern Congo. So there is an effort, international effort, to, to reduce the purchase of, of these conflict minerals, which are drive, have been driving the conflict in the Congo for the past decade or so. And uh, so there's, there's an added element in how you deal with, with these particular elements and uh, as conflict um, uh, drivers. And so that complicates everything a little bit. Mm -hmm. Good afternoon. My name is Miata Williams. I'm from Dallas, Texas, by way of Freetown, Sierra Leone. And just to kind of piggyback off of what you just said, I'm interested to know if there is an ethics constituent of the Foreign Services that kind of looks into and navigates such conflicts in the Congo or in East Africa when it comes to the exportations of coffee and rare earth minerals. Yeah, and, and that's why what we want to do is get American corporations involved in a lot more um, exporting, et cetera, and, and finding new opportunities. And the reason is, is because, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been looking at American corporations. Why? Because we need to look at how we can improve how we train, develop our officers. Um, let me just kind of do an anecdote before I answer your question. So if you look at the civil service, which is a very huge bureaucracy in, in U.S. government, it's about 30 percent, you know, over 50, 30 percent mid-range, and then 30 percent young kids. If you look at the State Department Foreign Service, it's very different. It's less than 19% over 50. 41% of our people are young. I mean, you're talking 20 and 30 years old. That means over 60%, pretty close to 70% of our core has less than 10 years of service. <coughs> Two-thirds have less than five years. And so if you have such a young, young group, what do you do to train? How do you train and develop? How do you mentor and coach? Those are challenges. And we went to Procter & Gamble, General Electric, Boeing. We went to Starbucks. We went to a lot of really great American corporations. And, and a lot of things can't be adaptable, but a lot of things can. And so one of the things that we looked at is, is ethics, board ethics. One of, and you really got to be true to your values. And our value as Americans is that we protect and defend human rights, civil rights, and we're also there because as an American, you know, you're there to not only um, promote, develop um, the American interests, but part, of, part and parcel of our interest is also to help uh, these countries also develop and expand and help create a better tomorrow. Why? Because that means stability. And also what we learned in our development program in Africa is the investments that we put in, $6 billion, once countries start to develop, and what do they do? They don't buy a lot of cheap goods. They do buy cheap goods from China, but they also buy capital goods from the United States. And that's one of the things that we're noticing from our development programs. And the other thing on ethics is, I'll give you an example. I led for four years our peace operations in the Congo before Uncle Bill here came out. And then I did uh, peacekeeping operations up in the Horn of Africa. And I now do it in Somalia region. And what's really interesting is you represent the United States. 
And when you go into the Eastern Congo, where on a good day, a thousand people would die each and every day from violence, malnutrition, and other places. We've been able, and when Bill was there as ambassador, able to bring those numbers down. And when you bring those numbers down, you have greater stability. You have greater stability, you get greater development. You get greater development, then you have the opportunity to create better tomorrows for kids. And more important is you, you build a stronger relationship with the United States. And everywhere I went, uh, and he says, you're from the United States? That's great. The United States is a great country. And those are things that you just can't, that's not something you pay for or buy off of. That's something that we've earned. And it's something that has helped. And it's through our common core values, our commitment, and continued uh, commitment to help people become better and get better. So those are some of the ethical and legal issues. Uh, and of course, our lawyers can be very <clears throat> overbearing, but hey, we all know. <laughs> yeah. Will you please stand as well? Thank you. My name is Hiwate. I'm from uh, Ethiopia. So very nice uh, hearing your presentation, especially on the Ethiopian case. My question, it might be a little bit naive, but I, I also think it's worth mentioning. To what extent you are concerned that the US assistance to Ethiopia is actually helping a very authoritarian government take root, which where human rights violations are actually structural, mm -hmm. not just isolated cases, especially yeah. now, and how the, the United States policy on uh, preferring stability uh, more than any other va variables in the, in the region, has, is it, has it really worked? You know, I'm sure you're aware of the situation right now in Ethiopia sure, where sure. we're under emergency rules because mm -hmm. of, you know, direct human rights crisis in the country. Mm -hmm. so, have you learned something different in this area, so, or so do you still believe stability should be the overreaching goal oh, for the United stability States? Stability is based on our core values. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, not just Ethiopia, but, but really just general tr for everywhere we've been to, from Afghanistan to Asia to Africa. So one of the things is, uh, and going back to your example, so when I was the ambassador in Ethiopia, you know, every day one of the things that I did was talked to, at that time, Prime Minister Mellis and then the security people, et cetera, about getting, at that time, we had something like over uh, 20,000 uh, people in prison. Recently, pr journalists, the opposition group, et cetera, and, and it was hard slog. But to, that was not publicized. It was done privately, behind the scenes, and we got a lot of people out, and many of them are here in the United States uh, on study programs and what have you. <laughs> Uh, or in, in Europe or, or still in Ethiopia, and we, I still keep in touch with many of them. So the issue comes in is a lot of things that we do is never publicized, and, and we really aren't out there for publicity. We're out there to make things better for the next generation. And that's one of the reasons why we went to the Congo and for conflict resolution is to look at how we can, how our assistance can make things better. Not stability is an offshoot of of creating a situation where you have 
people having access to resources and also to basic core freedoms that we believe in. I mean, those are things that we'll always be committed to and that we'll always continue to, to advocate for. So if we can't, and that's our core value, that's who we are as Americans, so we're going to continue to do that. Um, and going into, um, uh, what do you call it, looking at assistance levels is, you know, aid in and by itself, and I think every Secretary of State has said, said this, from Secretary Powell to Secretary Clinton, is aid in and by itself is non-sustainable. So when I came into the Africa Bureau, you know, started about 30 years ago, we, we had like oh, a couple billion dollars, and we went to eight billion, now we're down to six billion. It's, you cannot rely on programs just based on, on aid. You need to look at other areas and other ways to develop and advance. And one of the things that at AID came up with is um, microenterprise loans, girls' education, because they, they fund themselves. And we've known that women uh, entrepreneurs repay loans at a phenomenally high rate. In some countries, over 90%, as opposed to men in the same countries, which is under 50%. And so, and what we find is that those communities become much more developed and better. Girls' education, the greatest, you know, return on investment. Why? Because once you have girls' education, the economic development of that community goes up arithmetically because of girls' education. And that's, and those are inexpensive things that pay back in, in volume. The other thing, too, is that we learned is that going back to, um, to, our ethics and values is if we can open up more opportunities. So w what's a great opportunity? Um, the area is trade and investment. If you look at one of the things that we did in Asia was non-tariff trade barriers. It was a pain in the neck to over. You can, you can reduce tariffs. Tariffs are only one issue. The other issue is non-tariff trade barriers, the bureaucratic problems within each country. And so if you look at Africa and developing countries, if their number one trading partner is Western Europe, like for Ethiopia, it's Italy. That, that's wrong. It should be their neighbors. Why? Because you can have higher rates of investment by having neighbors uh, in trading. And what we learned is that if we can break down the non-tariff trade barriers, and we started to do that in Africa, we could actually have total wealth would be three to four times greater than the total foreign assistance from around the world in Africa just by, by breaking down non-tariff trade barriers. That then, again, opens up opportunities. Because if it opens up opportunities, it could also help to look at corporations and companies and, and countries and leaders. So uh, one more example. So when we started out in Africa 30 years ago, we had, what, three countries that were under you know, really democratic, and it's now 21 countries. Again, granted, they're fragile, but that's a big leap forward from decades ago. And what we need to do is we need to be on top of it to look at it and also to hold uh, meetings not only with the interagency but also with our allies and with also within the African Union and regional states and sub-regional groups. And one of the things that uh, Ethiopia fostered was called peer group analysis. In other words, leaders coming in. So you have the problem in the Gambia right now where you have Jame who doesn't want to leave office even though he was defeated. So under the peer group, you have leaders coming in to convince him to leave. Uh, 
When I was out in, uh, in the Africa Bureau, we went to countries where you had consistently leaders who changed the Constitution so they can stay on and on and on and on, and saying, you can't do that. You have to give way to new governments, to new leaderships. And the reason is, is that you can't have countries that you, where you have changes of government through coup d'etats or through violence. You can't have that. That's not only inherently unstable, but it's also unstable to the entire region. And it impacts not only the country in, in specifically, but also the region in general. So those are issues that we work with. And I'll tell you, behind the scenes on Ethiopia, we work very hard. Things I can't tell you, but thanks. Hello. Hello, my name is Christian um, Jepson, and I'm sort of coming as a private citizen. I'm from Connecticut. Um, I, I'm interested in working, I, I mean, after I graduated last year, and I'd love to work um, serving America abroad, um, either in USAID or for the State Department. Um, but, but given the policy, the potential uh, sort of policy changes, um, both official and unofficial, that could come with the incoming Trump, Trump administration, um, I'm having a hard time reconciling my desire to serve my country abroad and <coughs> not enable um, some really bad policies. What have been some times where you have had to uh, reconcile something like that, um, and ha ha how did you do it? So where were you able to do it? So you keep an open mind and <coughs> a, a focus on what is the national strategic interest of the United States? I mean, that is your core question that you answer. So, we're, you know, right now is I help teach the... Uh, I, I redesigned our ambassadorial seminar, which, which we have 180 ambassadors and bilateral missions. And before they go out, we, we kind of train them on, on what it is that an ambassador does or what a leader does. Uh, the bigger problem or the bigger challenge is leadership. Leadership is really the most important thing. And it's really the development of your, your people in a mission. The policy, et cetera, is as a, as a Department of State or as a Foreign Service officer, whoever is the president, that's the policy. Whatever is the issues that are being articulated, that's what you advocate for. And you advocate it to the best of your, your ability, and you also have it based on our core values in cognizant of what the national strategic interest is. And so with that, um, it remains you know, consistent and persistent. And one thing the United States has throughout all, and this is really the strength of our democracy, is that we are very focused on helping and advocating what is in our national interest and what's really also helpful to the people of the United States. And that's really our two main focal points. Once you keep those two focal points, then everything else falls through. And going back to a, probably a larger question is, you know, if you have differences. Well, if you have differences, then there's always dis we have a dissent channel, mm -hmm. uh, which, as you know, under the uh, last year of the Obama administration, it made the Washington Post of people who are not in favor of our policy in Syria. Um, we've also had uh, dissent on the Vietnam War and uh, throughout history. The other issue, too, is um, I think our service, we see the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is U.S. national interests, in the interest of the American people. That's our two core pillars. So I have a couple more stories. So, so one, one thing. So, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of things you, you, you just can't make up in, in, in life. But um, 
I was the uh, human rights officer in China during Tiananmen Square. So every day we would go to the Tiananmen Square in 1989, and there would be a million people uh, demonstrating. And it was a very um, interesting period because Gorbachev was coming to see Deng Xiaoping, and this was the second time a Russian leader was coming to see. The last one was uh, Khrushchev and uh, Mao Zedong. So the other institute challenge was uh, the World Bank was have, holding its first annual meeting and was going to be in Beijing. But the problem comes in is that we looked and we looked at the challenges uh, that Tiananmen Square had uh, and the problems. And the thing is that we were able to provide policy to President Bush, 41, uh, and to the National Security Advisor, Brent Scowcroft. And this is a really a testament to sound leadership for the U.S. government because they didn't necessarily agree to what we were explaining about the problems <coughs> in China, but they accepted it, and they supported us, and they defended us. And that really goes back to sound leadership. And because of that, I think the relationship with China was stronger, sounder, and it put really a great relationship about what, who we are as Americans, but also what we expect on international operations. Uh, and right after that, um, I went down to Mongolia as one of the first <coughs> observers for the first free elections, because the Russians had just left. Um, and I went to the western part of Mongolia, and they had never seen an American. And they all lined up at the airport, and he says, oh, God, is he our first American? So I come out with Antonov, and he says, and the American representative. And the kid says, they look just like us, Mom. <laughs> so he said, yeah. That's, so you can't, um, so that's another issue is that Americans come in all sizes, shapes, et cetera. Uh, one, one thing was very interesting. We, you know, in our ambassadorial seminar, we have 180 ambassadors. I got the record. I was the shortest one. <laughs> it was good. Okay, anyway. Those are stories. Any uh, other questions in the back? Uh, my name is Theo, and uh, I live here in Washington, D.C. Um, question I have for you is, uh, in terms of diplomats and in terms of ambassadors, obviously there's changes when new administration, uh, presidential administrations happen. Do, you, do some uh, ambassadors stay on through? That, is it always, is there like a total onslaught of new ambassadors that come in, or do they, some might be with a Republican administration, some might be with a Democrat, it just all depends it, how that works. No, every administration is pretty much the same. So the, the number of ambassadors who are political is normally around 30% of all of our 180 ambassadors and et cetera are political. Towards the end of each administration, that number tends to rise a little. Under the Obama administration, because he didn't control the Senate, there was a lot more problems on the Senate confirmation hearings. But you have a lot of people, and um, uh, you also have a lot of political appointees within the State Department. And so I think um, at 12 noon on the day of the inauguration, normally all political appointees are expected to leave. And it's been pretty much that way since I've been in the service for now 37 years. And we had one, person, one story um, about 20 years ago, I won't say who it was, but <clears throat> he liked being ambassador so much, he sent a note back 
and said, I love it here and I am going to stay because I think I can do a great job. The Secretary of State wrote back and said, thank you for your service at 12 noon on the inauguration. You better be out of airspace of that country you're assigned to. <laughs> and he made it. <laughs> and when I was in, in Africa, the, uh, and I've been through four transitions, is we had a couple of people who were kind of knuckle-dragging. They said, well, I have kids in school, and i got to do this. No, nah, I know, but you know, that's, that's life. This is what you signed up for. Uh, and so that's, that's the issue. Hmm. So other questions, comments? But just to add to the comment, though, most of the ambassadors who are career ambassadors they stay on. Stay on. Mm -hmm. I was through the transition from Bush to Obama, and you get this letter where you have to resign. Mm -hmm. You have to send in your resignation, and they said, we'll be in touch. And they never were in touch, so I assumed I was staying put there. Uh, but, the, uh, but the career people stay on. It's the political folks that uh, have to go. Uh, Rob Tobiasen, formerly of Treasury. Oh. Uh, hey, Rob. Yeah, I, I know Ambassador Yamamoto because his son Michael and my son Peter were in Boy Scouts together and proceeded up ego routes and stuff. And, and that kind of leads to my question. Um, do you have time in a foreign posting to actually become part of the community to be engaged in activities you know, like scouting or other things where you're representing America but you're representing it as an individual, not simply as an official representative? Or is your schedule really not such that you, you're able to do those Ooh. types of activities? Well, well, you know, Rob, is everything is kind of personality driven. You know, it depends on who the lead, and it goes back to leadership skills. Um, and I sat on a few boards where we review ambassadors and senior leaders and I would say, you know, 90% do a great job, amazing job. 10%, you know, you have to kind of counsel. And it goes back to coaching and mentoring. Uh, but I'll give you an example. So when I was, uh, so I've been head of mission in about five countries already. So five times in my career. And when I was the ambassador at Djibouti, Ethiopia, is one of the things is you really look after your people. Because, you know, the, my staff in Africa were really young. And when I was in Afghanistan, uh, I was kind of taken aback at how young the people were. And one thing about youth is great, because they are innovative, they're creative, but you also want to teach them the tools of the trade. In other words, the culture. Uh, what is it that is our value as a State Department person? And one of the things that we learned at General Electric and Boeing and Procter & Gamble and Starbucks is they're really good at branding and looking at, at their at their business models. And so we need to do the same thing. So, um, but the other thing, too, is that in everything, and Bill was the same thing, great leaders, that we went out and we took our people to everything we did. And you're on, you're, when you're an ambassador, it's 24-7. There is no break. There is no uh, time that you really have private time. And so my wife was also just working nonstop, not only for the community, but also looking at Outside, So I'll give you an example. So we had uh, one of the challenges in Ethiopia, going back to Ethiopia, was uh, the rise of Wahhabism. And this was driving some of the uh, Sunni clerics kind of crazy. And I said, well, why is that? So what we did was we mediated between the Wahhabist 
uh, sections and the traditional Sunni clerics, and we brought them together. Uh, it was a tough negotiations, tough talks, but hey, we did it. Uh, we brought the patriarch in. We brought in Christian groups. Uh, the other thing, too, is when my wife and I, because we're part of um, uh, <clears throat> groups here in our, our own community in the United States, we went out to the Coptic churches and the, uh, um, the mosques, and we started feeding people. Yeah, we, we, my wife and I paid ourselves. We just bought maybe a couple hundred meals, and we talked to the clerics and the priests, and we just started feeding people. Because what we noticed is a lot of people did not eat, or they had a lot of hunger issues and challenges. And yes, we have AID and food issues, but this was something personal from, from my wife and I to them to say, we understand the challenges you're facing as a community. That helps us understand what you're facing and what your needs are, and that helps us to become a better representative of the United States. Another challenge, too, is we adopted um, a, uh, orphanages, and we brought our daughter along. So our daughter now is at West Point, and it really, it, it really kind of impacted on her and my son, too, is going to an orphanage where most of the kids have HIV-AIDS, and their life expectancy is different. And how do you treat them? And the, pro the issue comes in is they don't want to be treated any different from any other person. And how do you resolve those? How do you work with these? And how is it that you can be a better person and understanding and support? So those are some of the things we did. Then for our community in the uh, embassy, it's, it's kind of unusual that we have very few ambassadors who bring their spouses. I mean, we have a lot, but in, when I was there, we didn't... My wife was really the first spouse in about a decade. And so we did simple things like, you know, Easter egg hunt, uh, um, <clears throat> Thanksgiving, Christmas issues. And, but we just didn't do it for our 286 American staff and 400 dependents. We also did it for our 1,500 Ethiopian staff. And we did the same in their families. Uh, and the, the other issue, too, is, is very interesting, is um, <clears throat> going into the uh, 2008, um, was it 2008 Olympic Games, right? So the Ethiopian team um, did a really good job. They got like six Olympic gold medals. Anyway, we invited them to our house. Why? Because the Ethiopian Olympians were just the heroes of Ethiopia. So we had uh, Haile Gebre Selassie, we had Tiranishi who won the gold medals in the 5,000, 10,000, we had her husband who won the bronze medal in the 10,000, and we said, we want you to help us. And they showed us how to help Ethiopia, because they were out there spending their own money to do orphanages and help and do centers, and from them, we learned a great deal. And so really learning and looking at very unusual things uh, really helps. Uh, and one last story is, um, you know, the um, African troops that we train, you know, it's just like our own troops. They have families. They have family members who die in, the, in, in conflicts. And so yeah, we went and visited them. We visited families. We said, we have a child in the military, and we know what you're going through. We know the problems that you face. And uh, I think that speaks more volume, that you're taking the, the time to learn not only what they're facing, their needs, but also all the challenges that they face as families. So those are some of the things. Rob, I don't know if that, if that helps. <laughs> Good afternoon, Clifton Jones, CSIS. 
Um, given your experience in the State Department and you spoke a little bit in the beginning um, about the Foreign Service, um, can you speak a little bit about the difference uh, between the experience of a Foreign Service officer with, uh, from the Foreign Service specialist and kind of speak to an IT professional in the Foreign Service and what that experience might look like, uh, how it is similar or different than their Foreign Service officer counterparts? Okay, let me caveat that first and go back. So if I said about anywhere from 25,000 to 30,000 will apply and only 280 will get in, those are really bad numbers. But the, the, the question is, is that, you know, in the Foreign Service or whatever, if you want to do something in international politics or international relations or represent the United States, you can do it in a multitude of ways. I mean, the U.S. military, uh, FBI, uh, Homeland Security, uh, Department of Commerce, Health and Human <coughs> Services. That's on the government side. The other side, too, is private businesses. Everywhere I've been to around the world is we work with American companies, NGO groups, um, entities, etc., and NGO groups like CSIS. You have a great operation overseas. Uh, Atlantic Council. Oh, I should say that. <laughs> so CSIS. So those are some of the things that that you can make a difference in people's lives. Another thing too is is on the corporation side. I know Procter and Gamble. Um, they just the State Department gives out an annual award called the ACE Award for best corporate partner. And one year Procter and Gamble got it for selling, what would they do, cosmetics and other things in Nigeria. But it's more than cosmetics. What they did was, because they're a great corporate uh, you know, entity, they were able to help um, communities by showing what American companies can do. And that spoke volumes to say, wow, American companies are really good. I mean, they do things that are amazing. The other issue, too, is the U.S. military. The military goes out and they do assistance programs and development. And when you work in an embassy, the State Department is always the smallest agency. We work with everyone. So I had six agencies. When I was in Afghanistan, we had over three dozen different agencies, offices, et cetera. So those are things that you need to work on, that we need to you know, interact with and find out and, and uh, be flexible. So going back to the State Department, per se, we have three cores. One is the Foreign Service Corps, which is the 7,600 officers. The other one is specialists, but I really like to call them professionals, and they're about 5,000 or so. And they form all the really high experts. You've got architects, you have communications, security people, doctors, nurses, uh, office managers, um, and then you have the civil service. The civil service is about 11,000. And those individuals are specialists within certain areas. Uh, and so all three of them have to interact, but all three of us have different types of uh, promotions and other things. So it becomes very hard on how we um, can work a lot. But we've been, I think, highly successful compared to other agencies and departments in working together uh, and working for common values and common strategic objectives. So let me just go into the, our specialist cores. And they have different ways to enter. Uh, and you can do whatever you want within these cores. You, let's say you come in as an engineer. 
You just love doing construction or waterworks. Well, we got the job for you. We have 278 embassies and consulates. Any given year, we're doing three dozen embassies are being constructed. Or we use your advisors and our assistance programs on waterworks, reservoirs, uh, other things. So you like that job? It's great. Uh, we had one person who said, you know, I want to do something different. I want to transition into the Foreign Service and become an officer and do political report. Fine. If that's what you want to do, good, go ahead. We had a doctor who decided, you know, I'm in the surgery and other things, you know, I want to do something different. So it's, when you enter each of these cores, it's not limiting, it's broadening, because you, it's the start, because you can do things in other areas. In other words, find what's passionate about. So right now is, I'll give you another example, is that, you know, um, I commend you to look at the State Department. In a few months, we're going to be opening the Museum of Diplomacy. And it tells us about who we are as, as a service. But more important, it's we did it ourselves. We have probably the best designers. We have great curators. We have artifacts people who can identify artwork and assess it. You know, my wife is an art appraiser for ancient Chinese artifacts. And, you know, I mean, she's like, we got a lot of those people. And we have uh, uh, protocol specialists. We have experts in every field. The State Department is a very odd place. We have probably one of the, we got great economists and, uh, and treasury people. You know, one of the things that, off tangent, is uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics. He used to come and visit us in Africa. And we used to have him for, for dinner. And I, I did not understand most of what he said, but my wife did. <laughs> I had to have a dictionary. What did that word say? That's a good, strong word. I need that. And he was, but the things he had was innovative, is creative, and it really shaped how AID and State Department did development. Because Joseph Stiglitz spent one day with us and said, this is what you need to do. And I spent a, a luncheon time with Henry Kissinger and I in Japan. He, was, he came to visit us. And I said, like, you know, when I was a younger officer, we worked for him. He said, wow, this is like tough. The, the Secretary of State. And it's great. They're humans, and they really work, they really have tremendous amount of knowledge, and you kind of draw from that, uh, and you become a better officer. So going back to, to the uh, professional core is whatever you have a passion for, enter that, you know, look it up, www.state.gov, look at how we hire people, and then go into that. The other issue, too, is... Uh, if you find a job on USA Jobs, take it. Because once you enter the service, I mean, as a civil servant or whatever, we have transitions from civil service to foreign service. We got transition from foreign service to civil service. We have lawyers who are just great people um, in the foreign service, but also civil service and, and, how they, and how they interact. So use it as a stepping stone to broaden your horizons and to do other things. So a biochemist at a Columbia University can go out and do trade promotion, yes, <laughs> or personnel assignments or whatever. So those are things that just follow your passion, but be flexible, be innovative and creative. I'll give you one more example. When I was in Japan, we were doing um, magnetic levitation studies, which is now coming to the United States, maglev. And, but Japan had, had the market. They had all the advanced science and technology. And so when I was a young officer, I said, you know, we should report on this. And because of our reporting, it helped American companies say, whoa, that's pretty good. 
It's great. So just be creative and innovative and, uh, and, and see the opportunities uh, because they can really make a difference not only in the lives of people you're touching, but also can help the Americans back in the United States. Hi, I'm Mary Swartz. I'm a Foreign Service officer. Yay. Just got back from Beijing. You talked about being in China during Tiananmen. How has the rise of China and Africa affected our development relationships there for both of you? All right. So I'm going to say something controversial. <laughs> so I think, so having worked in, in China, um, did you know we have the best Chinese speakers are in Africa Bureau? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the reason why is because China... When we dealt with the Chinese in China, it was like, it was like hitting your here's a brick. Hit your head on that brick. How many times can you hit your head on that brick? Because the trade and market opening, it was hard. I mean, it was like uh, I'll give you an example. So the 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 chief of staff of the Chinese military came to the United States, and he was speaking to us. And you can see his body language. We're talking about Asia. Talking about other things. This is his sphere of influence, South China Sea. You know, you just get out of our face, United States. Comes to Africa, he's relaxed. And because, A, I don't think they, they the only thing they care about a lot is about the resources. But more important is if it's good for business, then they're interested in it. So we worked with China to provide uh, engineering and peacekeepers in Sudan. The other issue, too, is um, in the Agaden region near Somalia, we had uh, 10, no, 11 uh, Chinese workers who were killed by the um, extremists, Shabab and, and some others. And the first thing, and this is where you've got to be flexible, the first thing I did was I went to the Chinese embassy and offered the help of the United States government to say, we'll help you look at how you can recover these bodies. Because, you know, it's... it's really hard to go to the Agaden and the Somali board to recover bodies. And based on that, they were really touched by what the United States did. And that helped us uh, do a lot more things uh, and work in China. So right now we have bilateral talks with China on a wide range of issues. And one of the things that they did for us in, in Africa is we don't do infrastructure development. They do. So we said, to, okay, this is payback time, China. We want you to build roads and other things. Now, granted, uh, you get what you pay for, but they did it. And that helped American investments by getting American-invested products to the airport and out. So that was good. I'll, I'll give you one example. So you, you, you know K Street? This is great. So K Street has all these specialty food areas. So where are the best specialty food items coming from? I know it's Latin America, but the best ones are from Africa, Uganda, Ethiopia, Kenya, because they're cheap, they're good products. But unfortunately, because we have phytosanitary issues, they go to Europe first, and then they come into the United States, and it says Europe from Holland, from Germany, from France, but it doesn't matter. So, but we were able to do a lot of investments, and the Chinese built roads and bridges helped us get things to the market. So going back to AID, one last thing, is the um, AID did a study of the British market, and they said that the British love snow peas. And they said, what? So what we did was in Ethiopia and other countries, we have snow pea farms. They did outstanding amount of production for not only that, but also for the local market. 
And so there is a double benefit. Now we're trying to get those to the United States and, but, and also U.S. products to Ethiopia because Ethiopia buys a tremendous amount of uh, American goods and services as well and also a lot of capital good products from the United States. So that's a good news story. But th thank you. Come and see us, Africa Bureau. <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone else? A couple of stories. Uh, what? Got a couple more stories. A couple more. You only okay, got okay. a mindful of time. We only got a few more minutes. Okay, so one more story. So <laughs> saying how the Foreign Service has really changed, um, when you go to an embassy or work in Washington, is, is you have to be mindful that you're only one player at the table. So when we do these interagency meetings at the National Security Council, is um, you got to be mindful of the interests of all the other agencies and, and staff, et cetera. Um, and I worked for Vice President Mondale uh, when he was our ambassador in Japan, and we were in a really hard struggle between the interagencies. DOD had one view, we had Treasury had another view, State had another view, and the Vice President, uh, the ambassador said, you know, where's the one team, one fight? And everyone in the table said, nah, we're different. So it really, and it goes to the testament to the leadership of uh, Vice President Mondale, the ambassador, because he fashioned a working relationship among all these interagencies who really did not get along on some of these trade, tough trade issues. And he got them together, thinking together, and on the same page, and working forward together. So those are really you know, very important issues and challenges. And one thing, as I said, going back to Voltaire, always ask the right question and always go into an um, interagency meeting, which we call the battles, the wars, very well prepared. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, well, please join me in thanking Ambassador Yamamoto for being here today. <laughs>